0: Hello, everybody. I'm Carla Rushable. I'm president of ACB Families, and I would like to welcome everybody to our session on the Civil Sultana disaster. We're really excited to be presenting this session tonight. And before we get started, I'm going to ask Katie if she will give our CE code.
1: Yes. So our opening CEU code is 432D, as in dog, 5. Again, that's four three two the letter d as in dog and the number five
0: all right thank you katie and i want to begin also by thanking katie and rick for uh, hosting the session and rick for doing the streaming we really appreciate that help and support and without it we certainly couldn't be here with us tonight we have drew white jay and drew white Drew to me. Um, he has been a friend for a long time. I've known his family for years and years and years. And I really have him here with us. Drew does a lot of uh, research and has been involved in um, the Civil War, just research and been interested in the subject for many, many years. So he used to do reenactments uh, and actually both sides. And uh, of course, in Kentucky, and he is in Kentucky, as I am, um, there was uh, the Battle of Perryville, and they, they um, did reenactments every year, And uh, but one time I asked Drew if he was still doing reenactments, and he said no, that got a little too active for him, So, but he does a lot of research, and he's written a book on some of the aspects of the Civil War tonight we're going to be discussing the Sultana disaster. And when I contacted Drew about doing this session, I didn't know anything about such a thing as the Sultana disaster. I'd never heard of such a thing. And uh, he said this was his newest project, his newest research, and was really enthusiastic about sharing that information. Drew is an attorney here in Louisville, and he's always been uh, the attorney for... Like, you know, not the big insurance companies or anything, but the person, the individual interested in helping people. And um, at, at one point, he has done, well, in fact, a couple of times over the years, he's done some Civil War presentations for the Kentucky Council of the Blind. And I got to tell you, Drew, the first time you did this for, did a Civil War presentation for us is about 20 years ago. And we had that that talk right before lunch. And I thought, boy, we'll do it before lunch because Um, you know, it, it probably won't go very long. And most of you know in your chapters and your affiliates that one thing you don't interfere with is food, that people are always anxious to get to lunch. Well, there was an exception. And that was the day that Drew presented at an activity about the Civil War. And people kept asking him questions and asking and asking. And finally, an hour later, we had to say, well, we really do need to have lunch. So, um, Drew, we really appreciate you being here as he goes through his presentation. If you have a question, for those of you who are in the Zoom room, you'll be able to raise your hand and ask your question. Drew has indicated that he's more than happy to take your questions as we move along. Welcome, to to everyone who is listening to us in all the various kinds of ways that you can connect through ACB radio, whether you're on the Amazon devices, if you're on your Victor Reader stream, if you're listening through your phone, either Android or uh, iPhone through the ACB link app, or even if you are listening on the landline service where you can call up and hear ACB radio, we are certainly glad all of you are with us. So with that, Drew, I'll turn it over to you, and you can start uh, telling us about this steamboat accident that probably very few of us had ever heard of before.
2: Well, let me get started. I appreciate the introduction. Um, I think Carla describes a far more impressive individual than I've ever met in the mirror, but uh, (laughs) I appreciate her deep confidence regardless. We are going to talk about an incident that is, uh, I won't say it's lost to history, but it's something that very few people know about. And it's something that's not well known about because it happened in the context of other events that just greatly eclipsed it. The Sultana disaster, a steamboat disaster, which took place on April 27th, 1865, was the greatest maritime tragedy in United States history. But it happened during a month when Confederate armies were surrendering around the country and when Lincoln was shot. And so the country's attention was distracted by the termination of a war that had lingered on for four years. And by the assassination of a president who had carried every state except for Kentucky. We always laugh that uh, Kentucky was a border state, and we'll never know whether its sympathies were really Unionist or, or Confederate for sure, because uh, while it sent troops to both sides, it sent many more troops to the Union side and did so because the Union occupied Kentucky very early in the war and it never seriously tried to secede. There was a Provisional Confederate government set up in Russellville for a while in the early 1861. Kentucky participation that tried to secede, but they had no authority. They were not elected. It was more of a show than anything else. But Kentucky was the only state that did not that Lincoln did not get in the 1864 election. And there's a funny story that in uh, in McCracken County there was only one person that voted for Lincoln, and the county clerk wrote on the border of the voter rolls, we think we know who this man is. So he was not a popular president in much of Kentucky, even though Kentucky was officially a Union state. Kentucky is a state that has a lot of rivers. And you may or may not know that in the early days of this nation's history, the river system were our first interstate highway system. Today if we plan a map quest or get on one of our navigating machines and Ask for a route someplace that's a long way away, it'll find the major interstate highways. Now, those highways are under the jurisdiction of the states in which that part of the highway is e- exists. But when the Constitution was written originally, maritime law was placed under federal jurisdiction because these interstate highways were arteries, I mean, the, the rivers were interstate highways, and they were arteries of commerce that were governed by the interstate commerce clause of the Constitution. So if we'd followed that clause correctly, all, all car wrecks or disasters on the roadways, interstate highways, would be under federal jurisdiction. But much to the relief of our federal judges who are already very overworked, they're not. So if you have a wreck on I-64 on the Ohio River over the bridge, on the bridge, rather, that would go into the jurisdiction of Kentucky because that's owned by Kentucky. If you have a wreck in a boat under the bridge, you got to go to federal court. So, and again, that was originally done to facilitate interstate commerce. If you could go back to 1860, or let's, let's make it even earlier, let's say 1800, and see one of the major river arteries, the Mississippi, the Ohio, the Missouri River, even the Green River in Kentucky, a small river but full of commerce, you would see that those rivers at that time would be full of steamboats, paddle wheelers with side wheel capacity or rear wheel capacity, flat boats, wharf boats, the river was teeming with activity because uh, that was the major source of interstate commerce. The steamboat was a major innovation in uh, U.S. history. It was a boat that was not dependent upon sails or oars. It had its own mode of power. You had sidewheel boats that, for engineering reasons, were thought to be better. You had those that had rear wheels. Something that we see often after Uh, 1800 is a series of boiler explosions that led to a lot of mayhem. I'm going to give you a list of some of the explosions. This is not a comprehensive list, but these are a list of explosions and uh, sinkings that took place beginning. I'm going to start with 1816 wreck of the the Washington on the Ohio river. Boilers were were very, very unpredictable. They had not really perfected the steam engine. They were using it to great effect, but it was not perfected. Uh, River traffic, especially going upriver is very difficult because you may or may not know that river or the excuse me, that water has the same compressibility as does steel. It's liquid, it's softer to fall into than steel. But if you take a square foot of steel and try to compress it, you will have as much luck compressing water as you do compressing that steel. Whereas gases are very easy to compress. And so water even though it's liquid and we see it roll back and part the waves when we go into it, water is a lot of density and it, it, uh, it, it takes a lot to fly through the water. So you had a series of explosions beginning with uh, the steamship Washington in 1816, which had some loss of life. So they're not really sure in most of these wrecks how many people were killed because there is never a really good count on any of these ships as to how many people were on them. So uh, no one knows how many are missing. 1817, the next year, the steamship Constitution sunk on the Mississippi River off Point Coupe. That had a very minor loss of life, about 16 people, it's thought. Then in 1823, uh, the steamship Tennessee went down after a boiler explosion. And by the way, all these boats I'm mentioning are side wheelers. So whether those are less stable than the rear wheelers, I don't know, but they all seem to be side wheelers. And for those of you who don't know what that means, again, there's a wheel on the side that uh, plies the water and pushes the ship uh, up, up or downstream. 1825, the wreck of the steamship Mississippi. Uh, The Mississippi uh, went down near Natchez, and again, the loss of life is unknown. Uh, Later, 1828, the steamship Mississippi, uh, or the Compass on the Mississippi, uh, exploded. Oilers exploded. A number of people were killed, somewhere around 50. And these were all well-published in the papers of the day. Some people knew the dangers uh, of a steamship. In 1830, the Helen McGregor uh, blew up near Memphis. Memphis is going to be near the site of the boiler explosion we'll be talking about. With extreme loss of life, uh, people down to 12 year old boys uh, were, were found in the water after the ship explosion. 1836, June 19th, the steamship Rob Roy exploded, killing a total of 17. In 1836, the steamship Ben Franklin at Mobile Bay, Alabama, exploded. Loss of life, for sure is unknown, but probably around 25. 1837, the buke exploded near Musseltine Bar near Bloomington uh, with a great deal of loss of life. The Hornet, June 2nd, 1832. The Enterprise near Charleston, South Carolina, September 1816. The Lioness on the Red River, May 1833. The Blackhawk, December 27th, 1837. The Moselle near Cincinnati, Ohio. April 25th, 1838. The Ben Sherrod, May 8th, 1837. Major loss of life, probably over 100 people. The Brandywine, 1832, April 9th, also major loss of life. The Aranoco, April 21st, 1838, went down. uh, Major loss of life. Most of the ship's cargo also lost. A great deal of uh, cattle being shipped. The Pilot, 1844. The George Collier, May 1839. The Tangrapano. March 2nd, 1838, General Brown, 1838, of the Elizabeth. Just, uh, I can keep going on, just dozens and dozens of boiler ships exploded with major loss of life. One that took place here near Louisville, uh, which I'll mention with a uh, special mention since we have a lot of people from this area who may be listening. Lucy Walker was a steamship disaster from 1844 that also went down, it was a side wheeler with the exploding boilers. One of the problems with boilers was is they were they tended to foul very easily. And if you've ever been on the Mississippi River or the Ohio River, you shall know that they are very muddy rivers. And uh, unless the ship is well maintained, those boilers will clog and uh, not to good effect. And there was even a boiler explosion during the Civil War, June fifth, eighteen sixty three, of a Confederate steam wheeler. And guess, guess what they blamed that on? They were sure it wasn't their bad maintenance of that steamship. It it had to be the Yankees that did that. That was in all the papers of the day. Of course, it was really just the boiler explosion. It was not the, I mean, the Union would have loved to have had that ability to blow their steamships that far south to down in Memphis, Tennessee in 1863, but it it was was just a boiler explosion. So let's set the stage now for what happened at the end of the war with the Sultana. Very early in the war, It was common for both sides to do what was called field paroles or troop exchanges. What that means is, is when one side captured the other side's soldiers, they either had them stack their arms and walk away, or they took them prisoner and sent them either to Camp Chase prison camp in Ohio near Columbus or to one other prison camp and traded out prisoners one for one. Prisoner exchanges, uh, according to U.S. Grant, the general, were a, a real problem for him because he found himself fighting the same confederates over and over again who'd been captured and released and the catch release policy of the federal government at that time he thought was was uh, affecting his war of attrition on the union army on the rather the confederate army and that's the kind of general that grant was grant was not a great tactician i'm taking nothing away from him grant understood the basic math of the war and so did Sherman, and they understood that they could lose, 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 and lose and still win because they had far more resources and far more men, and so it was the decision to quit exchanging soldiers. Now, the problem with that was the South could barely feed their own men in the field, and they really didn't have the resources to store Union soldiers, and they couldn't return Union soldiers to the ranks if the Union army was not going to return their soldiers soldiers, and so both sides then had to establish prison camps, uh, that were, and by the way, we hear a lot about Andersonville, it was it was a hellhole, there's no question, but so were most of the northern prison camps. Being a prisoner of war in 1861 to 65 was not uh, a very good thing to be. There was great deprivation, there was great starvation, and if anyone's ever read the Andersonville diary, you know that even in Andersonville, you were in more danger from your fellow comrades-in-arms than you were from the Confederates, because of all the looting and stealing that went went on between the individual soldiers. At war's end, uh, at the surrender, these men would all be released, and of course they would all want to come home. Uh, As most of you know, on April 9th, 1865, at Appomattox Courthouse, Lee surrendered the Army of, of Northern Virginia. Many people mistakenly end the war at Appomattox Courthouse. If you've been one of the ones that thought that that was the end of the war, think again that was not the end of the war. There were two two major Confederate armies still in the field and many, many enclaves of Confederate raiders still running around the South. Grant asked Lee to surrender the entire Confederate army, but Lee indicated he only had authority over the Army of Northern Virginia, and that's all he could surrender. But after Lee's surrender, uh, the other generals in the field realized that the cause really was lost for them. And so on April 26th, 1865, General Johnston Joseph Johnston, not Albert Sidney. He had died at, at uh, Albert Sidney Johnston had died at Shiloh in 62. Johnston surrendered to Sherman, uh, all of the forces of the army of the West, once called the army of Tennessee, uh, at, uh, Bentonville, North Carolina that left only one army in the field, one major army, plenty of, like I said, Raiders, that army was the trans Mississippi army that was at that time under the command of Kirby Smith. And he surrendered that army on May 26, 1865, with one of his raiders, uh, a Cherokee chieftain named Stan Waity, being the last Confederate general to surrender on June 23, 1865. So in this period of time, every Confederate force surrendered except for the guerrillas who kind of tried to slip into the woodwork because they knew they'd be hung after the war for their activities. These men are mostly criminals or outlaws they were using the war as a cover. And there's also Joe Shelby, a Missouri general who decided he wasn't going to surrender and took his army down to Mexico to be a bodyguard for Maximilian. So of all the armies that surrendered, that's the that's the chronology of the Confederate armies that surrendered with one general not surrendering and uh, coming back to the United States many years later. The Civil War was America's costliest war, both in terms of materials of war, uh, which if you could put that into modern figures, it would be into the trillions of dollars. And in terms of, of lost life, the Civil War almost eclipses the casualties of every other war. Of course, everyone who died was an American. Uh, and so the losses are about 700,000, which is an incredible amount to think about losing in a nation, which at that time numbered about 30 million. So when you think about one in thirty people dying in a war, that would be an incredible figure today. Oh, it would be uh, close to 100 million today we had this, if we had the same casualty count in a war. Uh, not 100 million, but um, not terrible. I figured this out and now I forgot the number. But it, it would be a, a colossal number of people. It, well, well, into the millions. Deep in the south were two of the most notorious southern prison camps. In Alabama was Camp Cahaba, full of men who had been starved, but not really. Uh, uh, people act like this was done They Actually, the casualty rate for starvation for the guards was about the same as it was for the prisoners. The Confederacy did not have the resources to feed and equip their own men, much less the prisoners. Gehava was a hellhole, and uh, it was liberated not too long after Lee surrendered, as was uh, the prison camp in Georgia known as Andersonville. Andersonville is kind of emblematic for how bad prison camps can be, but uh, if you've done any research on it, you'll you'll find um, that Elmira, Camp Morton, northern prison camps, like I said earlier, were also horrible places, places that uh, would not pass any, any, any Genevacan standard. Geneva standard currently. Now, some of the men in these prison camps have been, had been in prison for up to two years, for 23 months, I should say. They had been resettled in a camp that the Union Army was holding. The men to first be sent home near Vicksburg camp called Camp Fisk. The transport for many of them was going to be upriver because many of them were Kentuckians and Tennesseans. That's right. They were Tennessee Unionists. In fact, uh, Tennessee provided... Thousands and thousands of Union troops uh, for the Union cause. And Kentucky, even though it was technically a Southern state, had been a loyal Union state, and there were were also many hundreds of Kentuckians in uh, Andersonville and Cahaba, both. Let's talk now about the Sultana as a ship. The Sultana was a fairly new ship when this event takes place. It was uh, constructed of wood. It was made in 1863 on the... uh, commission of the John Litherberry Boatyard in Cincinnati. It was intended to be a deep south Mississippi cotton boat, but given that there was not much way of getting to the deep south to conduct commerce if you were a northerner, it never really made it to that point. The steamer weighed 1,700 tons. It was equipped for a crew of 85 and for passengers of 376. Most ships at that time would, would carry passengers up and down river as well as cargo. So they were both passenger ships and cargo ships. For the first two years of its existence, it ran a regular route between St. Louis and New Orleans uh, carrying troops. It initially, as I said, it was, was made for a Captain Ludwig, but it was sold to new owners in 1864, and they employed Captain James Cass Mason to be at its helm. Mason was considered a very capable captain. He was also considered a little bit careless. He was very fast in delivering his loads, but he suffered deep financial problems. And because of these financial problems, it is believed that he took a lot of shortcuts with what would be good safety practice. Although Cass was a northerner, early in the war, he made money selling goods to the south. And because of this, he was not trusted much up north. And so his reputation in the eyes of many was considered questionable. One of the things he is accused of since the disaster took place was just not really taking good care of the boilers, being more interested in speedy delivery of goods than uh, in a clean running boiler system. Boilers would often become inundated with mud, especially in the Mississippi River. And uh, with the history of so many boiler explosions, Mason was not in the eyes of many taking uh, proper precautions. Well, with the liberation of these prison camps, there was a need to get many men back up river. In that prison camp were many men from Ohio, Indiana, and as I said, Tennessee and Kentucky, all of whom could be delivered home most quickly by heading up the Mississippi and Ohio River. Mason was offered $5 per enlisted man and $10 per officer to transport people back up the Mississippi and Ohio. Young men from Ohio and Indiana and Kentucky rejoiced, believing that in just a few days they'd be greeting their loved ones. But little could they know that because of Mason's cupidity, they were doomed before this journey ever even started. On the way to Vicksburg on commission to transport these prisoners, the news came to the men of the Sultana that Lincoln had been shot and killed. And it was their duty to deliver the news at every point south, every, every port south they stopped at, that Lincoln had been killed. This, uh, as you know, those of you who were alive during the Kennedy assassination, uh, as I was, this is a very, very gripping event in the history for a chief executive officer of the country would be killed, assassinated, especially in this case at the termination of war, and by somebody who was ostensibly uh, a patriot for the other cause, although I don't know if I ever use the word patriot for John Wilkes Booth. He was too cowardly to go fight in the war, but not too cowardly to shoot somebody in the back. There's a lot of uh, discussion now about Confederate flags and monuments and so forth. We won't get into all that, but it's interesting that one of the things that got John Wilkes Booth caught was a Confederate flag. As he leapt from the balcony after shooting Lincoln, there was a Confederate battle flag hung. At Lincoln's box, it was captured, and it was a, a trophy of war, and he caught his foot in that battle flag as he jumped, and that caused him to land in a funny way, and he broke his leg. And then he yelled, six semper tyrannis" and ran off to Dr. Mudd's house and uh, ruined his life. And that's where the expression comes from, my name is Mudd, because Dr. Mudd was, as you know, prosecuted just for setting his leg. In Vicksburg, um, about April 17th, 1865, Mason Mason arrived. He immediately met with a colonel of the Union Army named Colonel Reuben Benton Hatch. He was known to be a corrupt quartermaster who was uh, reputed for taking bribes and doing other favors for the right price. He was closely tied with people who were involved with Lincoln's reelection campaign. And so he was never prosecuted, and his sins were often overlooked, generally overlooked, because of his political connections. It is uh, believed that he struck a deal with Colonel Hatch to overload the Sultana because of the commission he was getting for every soldier delivered. The initial load of men on the Sultana was to be about 1,500 men. Now, that was already an excessive number of men to load onto a ship that was designed for 400 passengers. But the plot will thicken. On April 23rd, on the way south, one of the boilers ruptured, and it was quickly fixed. This is before they even got to Vicksburg. Mason knew that there was already a weak boiler that had been patched rather than replaced. Keep in mind that this boiler rupture took place while going downriver. And as all of you can certainly uh, guess, it takes a lot more steam to go upriver than to go downriver for the obvious reason that you're you're up against current. Once at port, a union captain by the name of Captain Frederick Speed was the officer in charge of loading POWs onto the cell 10. Speed left his post. And hundreds of prisoners were crowded onto the sultana that were not supposed to be on the sultana. The motive for doing this was to increase the profits that Hatch and that Mason would reap. Also on the sultana was a small number of civilians. I'll mention specifically, there are about 100 civilians. I'll mention specifically Ann Annis and her husband, Lieutenant Harvey Annis, who was military, and his seven-year-old daughter, her seven-year-old daughter, Isabel Annis. I'll get back to them in a moment. It's believed to be the actual number on the board on, that were put on board was 2,500. This on a ship designed for a maximum of 400. In addition to the 2,500 men that were loaded onto this ship, there was 120 tons of sugar, 90 cases of wine, 70 horses and mules, a hundred hogs. And also, uh, in the hold of the ship, there was a coffin shaped box with a pet alligator that was kept by the men as a, as a pet. All of this loaded onto one ship, uh, I can't show you this for obvious reasons, but there's a photograph that was taken at port of the Sultana, and I can describe it for you. There is not any place on the ship where there's room for a man to turn around. They are packed all over the ship, even sitting on top of the, of the casing or the housing for the, for, the, for the side wheeler, crowded in like, like cattle. Uh, is the only way I know how to say it. And off they took. While loading the ship, someone noticed that one of the decks began to sag. And they insisted on letting them off the ship to get onto a local ship called the Pauline Carroll. That was actually supposed to be one of the ships taking men back upriver. The crew, once again, in order to make the most money they could, told the, these men who wanted to get off the ship that the Pauline Carroll was full of men with smallpox. This was not true, but it did discourage the men from getting off the ship. They say that even Mason was terrified when he saw the men huddled together and saw the the mid-deck sagging from the weight. As is so often the case, greedy people do dangerous things, thinking that this time, this time I'll get away with it. I have a picture here I can't show you of a, of a train from about the same time. Overloading passengers was not unique to Captain Mason. Trains coming back up north were also overloaded, even with men sitting on the cowcatcher. For those of you who don't know what a cowcatcher is, that's the triangular portion in front of the locomotive engine that will push animals off the track to avoid a derailment. So overloading was not, un, not uncommon, but this was extreme, what was going on in the Sultana. The Sultana was 260 feet long and 42 feet wide. Imagine crowding 2,500 men into a space that small. It was a fraction of the size of the Titanic, but there'll be more casualties from the Sultana disaster than there will be from the Titanic. The ship's route was to be from Vicksburg initially. The first leg was to, from Vicksburg to Cairo with a few stops on the way for fueling and whatever else. In case you wonder what kind of fuel that a steamship runs on, that's a really good question. It depends on the steamship. Some coal, some wood. If you've ever seen or if you've had anybody describe pictures of the Ohio River from the 19th century, you'll notice that the nice trees that grow along the river now were no longer were not present in the 19th century because steamships would stop and cut trees down and use that for fuel. And so the river was stripped sometimes for 100 acres back from the water. And so they did make several stops uh, on the way to to Memphis and at Memphis. And the boilers were holding. Uh, the men who were sitting on the housing of the boiler thought they were the luckiest men in the world because in the frigid air of the evening in April and on the river in the evening, it does get very cold uh, and the wind bites. These men thought they were so lucky to be sitting on the housing of this boiler where the heat was coming up and keeping them warm. It will be the worst place to be. In just a few minutes at 2 a.m. on April 27, 1865, all peace ended for the men of the Sultana. While the men slept as best they could, crowded together like that, in between the Chickens Island and the Hen, two islands uh, about 10 miles east of, of Memphis, there was an explosion. At 2 a.m., the silence was shattered by the first explosion, and the first explosion threw men from the paddle wheel housing straight into the air. The lucky ones fell in the water. The unlucky ones fell straight back down onto the boilers and were burned to death. There were two more explosions just after this. Three boilers exploded in all. There was a dichotomy of events. Some men burning to death, some men freezing to death in the frigid waters. The men, because they'd been prisoners of war for so long, were frequently unable to wade or tread water or hold on to objects that were keeping them afloat or swim and ended up sinking and drowning in the, in, the, in the waters of the Mississippi. There are a number of period depictions of this disaster um, that were done for Harper's Weekly and for other publications of the time. And these are based upon witness descriptions of the event. And what you would see if you could see these pictures is that the ship was completely engulfed in flames, and people had to make a decision to jump in the water and try to swim and this was mid-river, by the way, a long way to swim, or whether to stay and burn. Or Some didn't have that choice. They were immediately blown to bits by the boiler. This The river was littered with bodies, bodies of people who had fallen into the frigid waters. And some were able to hold on to items. Some, as I said earlier, were just too weak. Debris was found downriver for miles. Many of the bodies of men who went into the river were never were never recovered. Some were found for days. Uh, drifting ashore, bloated and, and of course, dead. The lucky ones were the ones that were killed outright immediately and instantly, and the unlucky ones were the ones that came into the river. There were no lucky ones, although some did survive. One gentleman by the name of William Luganbeel, still on the boat, uh, who escaped the fires and who escaped uh, uh, the frigid waters, went to the hold of the ship, took a bayonet, killed the alligator that was in the wooden box, emptied the box of its water and took it to the side of the ship, threw it in the water and dived into it and turned that coffin-like box into a raft. And he survived. We don't know about all the civilians on board, but of the three I mentioned earlier, Anne Farias, Harvey Annis, or excuse me, Anna Annis, Harvey Annis and their daughter. Anna Annis describes herself as being jumping in the water with her husband and child and the water, which was swift, immediately washed away her husband and her daughter, and she never saw them again. Clinging to a piece of wood the entire night, she's able to get to shore the next day and describes uh, at the scene of the event, dozens and dozens of bodies, both floating in the water and on the shore of the river. Again, as I said, many bodies were never recovered. Captain Mason is known by those who witnessed it to have survived the explosion. He was seen throwing debris overboard to help people latch onto things so they would stay buoyant in the water. However, he did not survive, and whether he nobly went down with his ship like a ship's captain is supposed to, or went down because he knew there was a prosecution to follow and he was bankrupt and ruined financially, we don't know. All we know is that Captain Mason did not survive the incident, and I would say as an attorney, the liability for this wreck would have been colossal. Who would have been liable? Well, the federal government has immunity, so it would have been the private parties. If you ever have a case against the government, uh, don't get too excited. The government has well protected itself with laws of sovereign immunity. We have uh, the Federal Torch Claims Act and the Kentucky, and here in this state, uh, Board of Claims. But for the most part, <laughs> if you have a, a sovereign as a liable entity, it's not a great case, unfortunately. Estimates as to how many people died in this of that disaster are a variable. It's that way because we don't know exactly how many people were on the boat because of the skull druggery that took place back at the dock. It's believed that 2,500 in total were on the boat, and the best estimates say that 1,700 people or thereabouts passed away in the waters or in the explosion itself. Now consider that in the Titanic disaster, there were 1,600 plus fatalities, meaning that a ship that was four times larger, with many more lifeboats, uh, of course but which went down and, uh, with most of it, many of his passengers who thought the ship was unsinkable even up to the last few moments. That ship had fewer casualties than this disaster. You might ask yourself, why have you not heard more about the Sultana disaster? And, and the question I have is, why is there not a movie? And I ask that question because it seems like some of the most unimportant events get turned into biopics these days. This is the most egregious uh, misplanning in naval history. And by the way, at that time, the U.S. Navy had jurisdiction over the river systems, not the Coast Guard. So uh, a good trivia question is, did the U.S. Navy ever win a battle in Kentucky? The answer is yes. They won a bunch of them on the Ohio River, the Mississippi, river too. But at that time, the, the the river was under the command of the U.S. Navy. But there is no Navy ship close that could have helped uh, rescue men from the water. There were a few other smaller boats close by most notably the Bustona, that is known to have rescued at least 200 men out of the water. One of the men who was rescued out of the water was this William Lucanbeal, who was floating around in a coffin in a Union gunboat known as the Essex, which had been stationed for a long time near Columbus, Kentucky, but at that time was down near Memphis. Uh, it was a, uh, not an ironclad, but it did have armor. It pulled Mr. Uh, Lucanbeal out of the water and saved him, the man who had taken the coffin-like box for the, for the alligator. At 9 a.m. the next morning, the remains of the Sultana, mostly burned, uh, finally disappeared below the surface. It took uh, seven hours to sink completely. 700 survivors were brought ashore. Of the 700 that were brought ashore, 200 of them would die from wounds or from exposure or from disease occasioned by the event. 1,700 casualties in all. Again, it's the worst disaster in U.S. naval history. The total deaths in the Titanic, as I mentioned, was 1,635 is the best estimate for that. So this exceeds the casualties in the Titanic. Let me read you an article from the paper of that day. Now, the casualties in this article are incorrect, which is, you could expect from a paper of that day, She did not have the same investigation. It reads, The latest from the great disaster of the steamship Sultana informs us that 876 of the passengers and crew have been found alive. And that was an overestimate. The total loss is believed to have been 1,500. The disaster dwarfs into insignificance any river or ocean accident that has occurred for years. Many brave fellows from Ohio just escaped from long prison confinement in the South and en route to their homes where they would have been welcomed. Oh, how warmly by friends and parents and by wives and children were lost. Many escaped the disasters of the camp, the perils of the battle, and the sufferings of a, pers- of a-, of a prison to meet death in its most sudden and hard form. The Honorable John Covet of the War Commission furnishes the following information relative to the Sultana. No troops of the United States cast of Ohio were lost. That's not correct, by the way. All eastern troops are to be sent to Annapolis. He says the boat was overloaded, her registered capacity being 376 overload uh, passengers. Other good boats were at Vicksburg at the same time, but the authorities would not let them have them. Prisoners think there is criminality in the matter. About 2,000 paroled prisoners were at Vicksburg when the Sultana left. 3,000 were left at Andersonville in consequence of the railroad being destroyed between Andersonville and Jackson. So those numbers are all incorrect, but that's the best I guess they could do at the time without having full inventories. Now, as is so often the case, when really horrible things happen, for example, 9-11, the Kennedy assassination, it's hard to believe that something this disaster can happen for, through something as simple as Not maintaining a boiler. We like to think that when a man like Kennedy is killed, uh, that it was something much grander than a nothing burger like Lee Harvey Oswald. And so immediately there became a rumor that the Confederates had designed a piece of exploding coal that they'd put into the coal system of the Sultana. And that when that coal chunk was placed into the boiler fire with an explosive device inside of it, that it would cause the boilers to explode. You'll see this in some period documents of the day. You'll even see it in some period writings up into the early 20th century. It is complete nonsense. Uh, we know exactly what happened. We, we, uh, it happened on the way down to Vicksburg. It, it, was, it was a boiler explosion. An explosion of the type that an explosive would cause would not generally cause three separate boiler explosions that were uh, separated apart by several seconds. So again, when horrible things happen, People would like to have somebody to blame other than just a s- simple negligence or, or carelessness. And that's a good example of that. Now, how did this boiler explosion affect, um, by the way, I found an article from 1888 where a Confederate came forth and admitted that he'd done that to the boiler. Well, that's after he got his pardon. <laughs> it's kind of like when something happens in, in Israel, uh, five or six groups will claim credit for it. Yes, there were Confederates that claimed that they did this to the, to the steamer Sultana, but again, it's nonsense. Horrible events tend to harbor a lot of conspiracy theories, and this one is no exception. There were court-martials that followed the Sultana incident. The loading officer was court-martialed, and was penalized. Colonel Hatch was never punished for his uh, participation. Men who survived the Sultana disaster often had etched on their grave that they'd survived the Sultana disaster. But those of you who do genealogical research and have relatives in Kentucky who fought with the 6th Kentucky Cavalry, their story is particularly sad in that they were a couple of companies of that regiment were in skirmishing with the Union forces just days before the surrender and had agreed to surrender because they knew they were going to be immediately exchanged because the, the, the overall surrender was just days away. Everybody knew it was coming because Lee had already surrendered. And so these men laid their arms down and became willing prisoners of the Confederates, thinking they'd be released in a few days and to get back home, they'd be fine. But their transportation was the Sultana. And so if you go through the Adjutant General's report for the state of Kentucky, the 6th Kentucky Cavalry, and look at the casualty uh, figures, you'll see that uh, more men died in the Sultana disaster than died in combat. Putting the Sultana disaster in context, the casualties on the Sultana, exceed the casualties at the first Battle of Bull Run. So one of the greatest losses of Union soldiers, Union lives, comes about because of a complete disaster. At the end of the war, women are laughing and happy and thinking that they're going to go home. I've gone through the six Kentucky's rolls. I'm not going to read all these to you, but it's sad. You'll find uh, Killed in Skirmish with guerrillas, Killed in uh, Explosion of Steamer Sultana, April 28, 1863, which, by the way, is incorrect. It was the 27th exchanged and killed by explosion of steamer Sultana, meaning that this person was exchanged at the end of the war when they started doing prisoner exchanges again. He didn't actually go to prison camp, but was exchanged, as I said earlier, and ended up dying And that. At this point, I'd like to open things up to questioning. I've got some, an ample time for questions, and you can ask questions on anything regarding the steamboat accident or things leading up to it or the, or the Civil War in general, if you'd like.
1: Marissa, you should be allowed to talk. Uh, thank you much uh, for your presentation. Um, I really enjoyed um, listening to it and I was wondering I enjoy reading books about the Civil War and I was wondering if you could recommend any books to us uh, specifically associated with the Sultana um, disaster. Thank you.
2: Yes. If you go on Amazon, you'll see there are actually uh, several volumes written on it. And I really can't say one's better than the other. Some do more with background of the war. Some are more focused on the actual event. I haven't seen that any of them have any uh, bias. You know, when you read Civil War literature, it's interesting because depending on the period of literature you read, you get that period's political sympathies. All of the books that I've read, I've read on this are, are used as, as a resource we tend to be very middle-of-the-road and very, very, uh, very objective. Let me give you a list of them. Sinking the Sultana is available on Amazon for $16. It concentrates a lot on the, the greed factor that led to this whole tragedy. The Sultana Tragedy, that book's by Sally Walker. The book, the Sultana Tragedy, America's Greatest Maritime Disaster, is my favorite of all of them. That's by Jerry Potter. It's also $16. It's only $15 for the Kindle version, which you might want. And uh, Sally Walker's is only $14 in the Kindle. There's another book uh, less recent, but very good called Disaster on the Mississippi, the Sultana Explosion. It's not on Kindle. It's more focused on the events of the disaster than on the background and aftermath. Uh, It's written by Gene Eric Saliker and, uh, it doesn't have, well, there's a Kindle version. I take it back. The Kindle version is about $16. All of them are very good. Again, they cover different aspects, but for the most part, they do cover. There's also several really good films on the subject. There's one uh, that was on KET, or I should say PBS, the local affiliates, KET. And you might want to look on YouTube. There might be one of those on YouTube. I find all the time now that stuff that I watch on the educational channel ends up on YouTube because the market for second run documentaries is not it's not the greatest and people who are focused on something are more likely to find that on YouTube than they are on on the rerun on recast on on educational television. There's also if you want to do your independent research on it and see if you have anybody in your family that is uh, was involved with it or had it was anywhere close to it for example, I did have one ancestor that was in a prison camp that was not that missed the sultana didn't make didn't make the boat and uh, we're glad he didn't. I wouldn't be born otherwise. <laughs> it would have been a really bad bad day for me. But if you're interested in it, uh, I suggest that all of you become familiar with the adjutant general's report of the state that, you, that uh, your ancestors fought from if they were Union ancestors. There were, there were no secessionists on this boat. There were no Confederates in the Sultana. Everyone in the boat was a Unionist. And so if you find out the state your ancestors came from and go look them up in the adjutant general's report, it'll tell you exactly what happened to them, where they fought, And uh, whether or not any of their comrades died on the Sultana disaster. And again, for Kentucky and Tennessee troops, the phrase killed killed by explosion of the Sultana is replete through those volumes. It's not as common. And I don't think there were any troops from the Eastern Theater that died in the Sultana because that would have been completely opposite to the way they were going to go home. So, like I say, it was mostly Buckeyes and Indiana boys in kentucky and tennessee boys that were and by the way and some some had offloaded it at, at memphis luckily and uh and escaped this so anyway does that we answer your some, question yes
1: yeah, so we have some more questions so uh-huh. all right so the next one is telephone number nine four five four yes hi um i don't know was there enough of the wreckage that was worth them trying to raise it or have they explored it underneath into the river and stuff
2: yeah, I've read something on that. I don't recall the details, but they have, uh, there's a number of Civil War hulks that they've gone down to look at to see if they were uh, sunk by in- enemy action or by boiler. And uh, they did look at the wreckage. The description of the explosions are consistent with the boiler explosion on the on the Sultana, not consistent with in- in- enemy action. That's why the claims that it was enemy action are so ridiculous. See, would they would have loved... The, guy, the people who were court-martialed would have loved to have had it be enemy action. That's Then they're off the hook, other than mm-hmm. the fact that they overloaded it. But I recall they went down to the Sultana. It's hard to find because it's down in deep Mississippi mud, and it was boiler explosions. It wasn't, uh, you know, well, most of it burned away. It was, again, it was not Enemy action.
1: Yeah, I was just curious to see, you know, if they if they traced, you know, more of the explosion pattern and stuff like that, just to see, you know, which part of the people that survived survived because, you know, the the way the, the explosions happened. But thank well, the, you. I appreciate your the, information. Yeah,
2: I, I would say that the luckiest men on board were the ones that were blown into the water that were far enough away not to be not to be hurt by the explosion, but were concussed into the water and were recent prisoners of war and still had the strength to swim ashore. Those were the only ones that were really equipped to do what had to be done and there's a reason they don't open the pools till till June. Uh, April is not a good time for swimming, especially in the river system. So it was it was a bad night for those men, even the ones that survived.
1: All right, our next question is Gene Mann. This
0: doesn't isn't directly related to the Sultana, but I read or heard somewhere that the the people at Andersonville actually let some of the Union soldiers go and sent them back to their units and the 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 northern um, companies didn't didn't want them to to be brought back because it freed up more guards or something from Andersonville to fight. Had you ever heard anything about that? So they sent them back to Andersonville. You
2: heard um, anything? Yeah, I don't. I haven't heard that. I, I, I'm 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 uh, incredulous. I mean, I, I'm not sure. I accept that because most of the men who were fighting behind the lines were invalids by military standards, invalids anyway, and not 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 really ready for prime time men who could do guard duty were men who generally could not do campaigning duty. There was always a problem with manpower in the, in the Confederacy. I heard Shelby Foote say this. and I I think I agree more than now, more than ever. There's never any chance for the South to have won the war. If you look at resources and manpower. And so uh, most of the time, the good men were in the field. And if you had a fellow who'd lost a leg or an arm or, or a, a few of some of his fingers or whatever, he, he, he got to be a guard because uh, the guards were, again, not generally men that were going to be on the front line anyway. Now, some of the men that ended up as militia were later converted over to part of the regular army, and some of them were capable of serving in that capacity. But generally, home guard and prison guards were not your first-string soldiers.
1: All right. Our next question comes to us from Bob Kavanaugh. So, Bob, you should be allowed to talk. Okay, my question is: um,
0: I, I was wondering, is the
1: explosion of the Sultana and all these other sh- steamships is that similar to the explosion some twenty years later of the Maine in uh, in the where was that?
2: Yeah, down in the, the Caribbean. Yeah. Uh, Is that well,
1: the same cause of uh, that?
2: Or? The main, I, I doubt it was, I don't know what the, what the system, what the uh, motive power was in the main. I'm sure it was much more modern. You know, mechanical things are unpredictable, and uh, it's like anything else. You, you know, for those of us who are old enough to remember Apollo 13, as John Glenn once said, somebody asked him before he went into outer space if he was worried, and he said, why should I be worried uh, when a million things can go wrong and they're all made by the lowest bidder? You know, it, it things fail, uh, and uh, I heard Dick Scoby, who was the pilot of the first of the of the, uh, oh, what was the space shuttle that went down in eighty six Challenger was that? Mm-hmm. I guess that was Challenger. I saw him interviewed not too long before that explosion, and it was it was very prophetic. He said, every time you see a a spaceship leave the atmosphere, you're looking at a major technological miracle, and one of these days uh, we're going to find out. That is not a sure thing. It's one of these is going to go down. And it's going to surprise everybody. Of course, the next time he went into space, that's exactly what happened. And so it's kind of prophetic. I doubt that there, there was, there was a, there was, they claimed the main was sunk by a mine because they wanted to get into the war with the Spanish American war. Uh, I think they, they went down and looked at the main divers did, and it looked like it was just a, a uh, engine explosion. You know, we had several submarines in World War II. That were idi- idiop- idiopathically sunk, and idiopathic means that no one knows why they went down. Enemy action, depth charges, but uh, in, in retrospect, we think sometimes they may have just somebody, somebody mishandled a torpedo, and boom, you blew up your own ship. That's not unheard of. Mechanical things, you know, if it's ever had a rambler, knows so <laughs> mechanical things are undependable. I'm probably dating myself. We used to laugh at ramblers when I was a kid because it was at the time where we used to joke about guys who had MGs in, in high school because we decided they, they should be auto mechanics because if you had an MG, you had to work on it all the time. It broke down. So things just break. And uh, and again, going up going up river with a, with a patched boiler, as Mason did, and with overloaded that many times, just begging, just begging for disaster. And he had in his mind that he was going to get $5 a head and $10 for the officers. And I, I, I left this out, but, you know, on the Sultana, the officers had also gathered around in the second deck inside where it was warm, but they were also gathered around the over the boiler system where the heat was radiating up into that part of the, of the ship. So many, many officers were lost because of this disaster. I mean, it's so sad to think that here they were on the verge of being home with their families, just suffered one of the great extremities of the war. And uh, because of the greed of a few men, it never happens.
1: We have our next question here. We have several coming in. So Terry Lynn. So my question was, I I um, heard the part about the Civil War being the most expensive, but I missed the part about the reasoning as to why it was the most expensive war that we've had.
2: Well, because of the debt we uh, undertook because of the... The, uh, the cost of uh, pensions, the cost of materials for war, the cost of ships. It was, uh, we, we, we entered the Civil War. It's, uh, it's been described this way by Bruce Catton. We entered the Civil War, a group of armed mobs. We left the Civil War with the most trained armies in the world. And we've never been second to anyone again militarily. The Civil War is what forged the United States into a great military power. Thank you. You're welcome. And by the way, I think the last, the last lady receiving a union pension died, what, I guess, think 10 years ago. It was very, uh, it wasn't uncommon in the early 20th century for a very, very young woman to marry a very old man just to get the pension benefits. And uh, I mean, when you think about that, we've just stopped paying a civil war pension in the last 10 years, you get the idea of how much war will cost. And I'm, I'm hardly uh, a dove. I mean, sometimes you have to fight wars, but there is a grand cost to every war.
1: Our next question is from Viola.
0: Hello, this has been very interesting and informative because I have read a lot of books about the Edmund Fitzgerald. And I realize it's not even close to the scope of this, but it reminds me a lot of that because of the things that happened. You know, if this hadn't happened, if that if the if the ship had been loaded correctly, if, you know, whatever, they, they would have made it. Or if somebody didn't do one thing or other, you know, that's that's what's so sad. You know, I sitting here listening to your story, which thank you very much for doing it. It's just really sad. I'll, that's a lot of people.
2: Well, yeah, the Edmonton materials just think especially sad. I think they finally decided that they improperly battened down uh, part of the ship. And uh, But for that, the ship wouldn't have become an, lost its integrity uh, in, the, in the waves. Thanks to Gordon Lightfoot, we all care about the Ebony Fitzgerald, but like I said, there's been no movie about the Sultana. I think an interesting feature of the 1970s was after the uh, Vietnam War protesters made more movies unpopular, and that's what happened. I mean, we were all so much uh, stirred up over the Vietnam War. We quit making war movies for a while. I think *A Bridge Too Far* is the first big war movie that was made after several years, and so Hollywood created the species of films we call the disaster film, like *The Towering Inferno* and *Earthquake* and movies like that. That you watch now, they're, they're kind of they're just, just little melodramas, and I'm, I don't I don't mean that in any way complimentary. They're not they're not great cinema, but here you had this disaster that was real that has all kinds of human stories behind it that are so sad and no one has ever thought about making this into a film. And now Hollywood has kind of got a hands-off approach to anything Civil War because uh people want to export today's politics into the past, which I think is an unfortunate development on our landscape and I I'm not here to argue politics. Please don't think that. I just don't think I I, I just think history is neutral. And the study of history is neutral. Um Caesar enslaved my ancient British ancestors, but I still like Roman history. I hope we're going to get to a point again in the future where we realize that history is not our enemy. History is a story and it's an interesting story. And it's not a story that rubs off on anybody currently living because we're not part of that history other than to be the descendants of people who made that history. And, uh, uh, that doesn't necessarily give anything to us, uh, to own up to, but, uh, the civil war, when I first started writing about it and reading, reading and writing about it was not controversial to talk about. And, uh, There was one place here in Louisville I used to go lecture three or four times a year that has stopped asking me to come because people have complained that they shouldn't be having Civil War lectures. And it's like, oh, cry me. this going to stop? This is silly.
1: We have another question uh, from Margaret.
0: I might have missed
2: this, and your talk was wonderful. Thank you so much.
0: But was the captain, was he a naval officer or
2: was he a... Because you said the seas were um, under control or they were, you know, by the, instead of the Coast Guard, it was the Navy at that time. Well, no, the the Navy was in control of the river from a military standpoint, but he was not, uh, he was not a naval officer. He was a maritime officer. He was a maritime officer, okay. But he was not a naval, sometimes the word naval is used in place of maritime, and I may have done that, but he was not a naval officer in the military sense. He was a maritime officer. So it was a as best I could tell, he's, he'd never been part of the U.S. Navy, which many time maritime officers are former Navy. Right. So is there any organization above him to basically, you know, maybe they could have better guided him than not? They were owners of the ship, but, you know, they they look at the bottom line. How much is this man making for us? And, yeah. uh, okay. you know, sometimes uh, it's it's kind of like uh, the Ford and the Pinto. And, hey, for the record, I've owned Fords, and I think Ford's a great car company. But... But the accountants really missed it in the pinto, didn't they? They did a cost yes. analysis rather than an analysis of what labs were being lost. And that has really changed the way corporate America has had to approach all these things since then. People sometimes are so interested in profit that they forget people. And, uh, you know, there's always a there's always a, a day of accounting when that happens. And uh, I was back in the days when they had the poison Tylenol capsules. I was so impressed with Tylenol. I was a much younger man then that basically it took every bottle off every shelf and dispose of every bottle because to them, not one life was more important, you know, than all the profits with less, I should say less important than all the profits. And so, um, you know, many, many companies act responsibly in those situation. Some don't in this case, uh, I, you know, they were probably fairly, fairly laissez-faire. They didn't really care what he was doing as long as he made the money. And when he heard he was going to get $10 per officer and $5 per listen, man, put that in today's currency. The average soldier got paid about $15 a month sitting on the time of the war you're talking about. So $15 a month today, what's the average soldier make these days? I think it's about $2,000 a month. That was a lot of money, $5 per passage. Uh, I talked a minute ago about the cost of the war. Think of just the cost of getting men home from prison camps. I mean, it, it was a colossal figure. And uh, I have found as an attorney that whenever the government has a program where they pay attorneys' fees, <laughs> they flock to it. You know, I, I mean, I've done, I've taken cases where I know the government had to pay my fee, and I've, uh, uh, you, know, you know, taken the case and thought, well, I'll get paid for sure because the government's got lots of money. I won't have to collect this fee uh, later. It'll be, they'll just send me a check. So uh, when well, you know the government's going to pay, and it's the government's not going to move move out of town and change the name one day like uh, debtors sometimes do, it's the best work that private enterprise can get sometimes. And people get greedy. I think of all the Medicare fraud that I've had to deal with over the years, both as the plaintiff's attorney reviewing bills and as a, a defense attorney defending a doctor who was accused of it. You know, people, people get greedy when, when the, this is what's wrong with third party payer. And I'm not for socialized medicine, but third party payer disconnects market and provider so that provider doesn't have any duty to market to be reasonable in pricing. So when you have the government paying passage, third party passage for their soldiers, they give me five dollars a head. Well, shoot. Put twenty five hundred men in that boat. Uh, do the math. That's uh, this was got, would have gotten him completely out of all of his financial problems. Just that one passage, one trip. He's 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 completely out of his financial problems. And all he had to do was take a chance with the lives of twenty five hundred men. So he did. Like I say, I, I love to know the reason when I get to the next life and I find out the real reason he went down with the ship. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, I think uh, he may have had a twinge of guilt or fear that I'm going to face a certain hell and maybe even the gallows after this after this night. And he just decided to go down with the ship and die that night rather than uh, rather than face all that.
1: All right. So,
0: Karen Campbell, quick question: You um, talk about all the boiler explosions. Were there ever any standards developed to prevent that? either before or after the Sultana?
2: Yes, there had actually been a a great number of uh, regulations that had been passed in response to the boiler explosions, uh, both on how often they had to be cleaned and such things. Regulations were not then like they are now, and we we now have regulatory agencies that will promulgate their own regulations. But the federal government had passed a series of laws that were designed to make these boilers uh, safer but during war and during extremities, uh, things get ignored. I'll give you a good example of that. I have here in front of me in my desk, hand sanitizer made by a local distillery. It's 80% ethanol. As you may know, ethanol is a edible alcohol. So the regulations for years have been that ethanol cannot be a hand sanitizer because they don't want people drinking it. But when you have COVID-19, uh, they rolled back the regulations and said, hey, have at it. Make, make alcohol. Kill germs. So when the war came along, all the regulations that were there to govern how to safely maintain and take care of boilers were just not really being enforced. And uh, that's often the case in war. You know, uh, I think of Agent Orange as a as a tool of defoliation in Vietnam. Did anybody test that stuff? No. They wanted to defoliate Vietnam so they'd fight a ground war rather than a jungle war. And so nobody tested it. Now men still uh, who fought in Vietnam were dying of Many species of cancer, because we didn't uh, take precautions before we put that out to be used. And you may or may not know, but the the, the uh, Perry's case uh, a few years ago made it so that those men have no cause of action against Monsanto that makes that stuff. So as an aside, I'm an attorney, and I, I hate the doctrine of sovereign immunity. Uh, I call it the Bill of Wrongs if you can't. Uh, If you can't seek retribution from your own government for things your government does, so you are not really a free people. The whole point of the Bill of Rights was to tell government what they could and couldn't do, not to, you know, know, and our rights arise by implication. It wasn't to uh, give us rights, but to limit the government. By limiting the government, our rights emerge. And so, you know, again, wartime tends to create a lot of shortcuts that don't turn out so good for the people standing in the way.
1: Our next question is from Teresa Christian. Uh, I'm just curious.
0: Do you have any idea how deep the river was at that point?
2: I don't. I, I have read on it, and I can't remember the exact map, the exact figure. I, I want to say it was like 100 feet deep there, but I'd, I'd have to verify that. Okay. As you know, the Mississippi River is, is a river with it's very deep, and it's deeper in some places than others. Sure. And um, and you, but you think 100 feet is enough to bury a 10 story building? Yeah, and these were these are very low draft boats. the The river boat was designed with a with a wide flat bottom so that it wouldn't have a lot of water displacement. It was buoyant because of its width, not because of its uh, of its uh, lack of cargo and weight. Although it, this this boat was obviously traveling deeper in the water than normally because of the weight. There, by the way, there's places that those, those of you who are from Kentucky or around about the Green River is still the deepest river in the world for its size. There are places where it's 300 feet deep. When you see that little river, I mean, I can literally throw a rock across at some places to think that there are places where it's 300 feet deep that you could put a 30-story building in the river and it would disappear. It's just incredible to think.
1: All right. We have a, another question here that just came in. So telephone number 2383. Hi, thank you so much for your presentation. I've really enjoyed it um I know this might sound like a silly question, but I was just wondering did they ever find a way to like figure out how to clean the boilers so that the ships would stop exploding and is there like was there a way to you know always maintain them
2: oh yes There's a, there there are known methods of stopping and cleaning out the boiler but it took time and it slowed down the journey um and so that was the real problem here and I think again the the worst part about this man's misjudgment it was that he already knew that he was going. He, he he was working with a patched boiler because it had already fractured. It didn't explode the first time; it fractured, and they had patched it up. And um, the risk taking to me is just unforgivable. That he, that he what he did to these men, and I especially feel bad for the men who said we want to change boats, and they said, "Oh, that's that boat over there has smallpox on it. You shouldn't go over there." And so they stayed to avoid smallpox and met their fate either in a pit of fire or or in a cold river.
1: All right. Our next question is from telephone number 1844.
2: Hi. Thank you very much for a very interesting presentation. I'm curious about uh, the parallels between the way the military uh, has reacted to this kind of a, uh, a, in a sense, a tragedy caused by the uh, incompetence or greed of private contractors and the negligence of supervision. It seems to me that what you describe here is part of a pattern that we see in other situations uh, over several generations, over several wars. Of, of how the military reacts in these kinds of situations, how it protects itself. Well, I don't think it's a pattern over several generations. I think it's a pattern over several millennia. Uh, you know, <laughs> we, we used to joke when I was a young attorney that uh, that my, my, my senior partner said, he uh, called me Drew, that's my nickname, Drew. Drew, it's better to know the, the judge than to just know the law. And uh, and I, 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 I queried him on that. You know, I didn't want to do anything dishonest or wasn't ethical, but I have found but if the judge knows you and it's a 50-50 case, the judge, there's a human factor involved. And so you have a man named Colonel Hatch who's been involved with Lincoln's re-election, uh, and he never gets prosecuted. He never gets taken to task. Similar event, you know, there was a, there was a union general here in, in Jefferson County, Kentucky, when they were planning the invasion of the South after the 62 invasion of the Confederates in the Kentucky. He named, and his name was, and I kid you not, the general's name was Jefferson Davis. Not to be confused with Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy. And if your name is Jefferson Davis and you're union general, you probably have a jaundiced view of life to begin with. He got into a fight with uh, another general, a Kentucky general, his commanding general, and he killed him in a place down here in Louisville called the Gold House, the original Gold House, not the one that's there now. And after killing him, Governor Morton, by the way, of Indiana had supplied the gun. He should have been court-martialed. But Governor Morton was friends with Lincoln, and uh, and I like Lincoln. I not put Lincoln down, but politics were working even more so then than they are now. The man was never was they could they claimed they could never find three officers to to, to uh, convene a court martial, and he was never taken to task for killing another Union general. So, uh, if if you think that corruption in leaders is restricted to this country or to the last two centuries. To have look take a broader view of history, it's it's always been there and it'll always be there. I think now we do better than most previous governments with rooting out corruption, but there's still all kinds of things that happen that don't get looked at closely enough. I mean, I don't want to get political again, but the whole Epstein death. I mean, I don't want to discuss that or debate that, but it just doesn't. It just doesn't pass the smell test for me. He may have hung himself. He may have totally hung himself. I don't know, but it just seems to me that it, you know people. Powerful people around the world have something to lose, and he turns up mysteriously dead. I just, you know, you scratch your head and think, yeah, I don't have to believe it.
0: All right. Well, I want to uh, thank everyone who has been here. And I especially want to thank you, Drew, for taking the time on the 4th of July to come and spend this time with us and, and present this most interesting information and tell us about this disaster and just paint this amazing a very sad but amazing picture of the end of the civil war and as people were coming home up to mississippi uh, i want to thank people who have been on the in the zoom room on the telephones on acb radio listening on your phones or your victor streams ever how you've been listening uh, you've been great and we're so glad you're here want to remind you of a couple of things. Remember that tomorrow at noon, ACB Families is having a presentation from Mike Hudson, who is the director of the uh, museum at the American Printing House for the Blind, and he's going to be talking about the Helen Keller collection that they have recently acquired from the American Foundation for the Blind from New York City. Uh, I think you'll find that very interesting. I've seen a few things in that collection, They brought two large uh, semis full of 22 pallets of of Helen Keller memorabilia from New York to Louisville this last January. So um, be sure and tell your friends about that. Come join us at noon tomorrow on the Zoom line. I'm not sure which channel we're on for those of you on the radio, uh, but that list is on acbconvention.org or listen to the um, information, I think that will be in the newspaper tomorrow morning. Newspaper is read at 8:30 a.m. on Main Street. So tune in and listen. Of course, those are Eastern times. Also, I want to remind you, if you have not registered for ACB Families as part of your registration for the convention, we invite you to do so because after the convention families will be awarding a number of door prizes to those individuals who have registered for families. This is separate and different from your ACB convention registration. So if you didn't register for families, you can go to uh, to registration, give them a call at 612-332-3242. Anytime between now and Thursday, July 9th, that's when registration closes, and add ACB families to your registration. We will be drawing for uh, gift cards and cash and I, I think that you will uh, enjoy participating in that in that uh, door in the door prize drawings. You know, we weren't going to go to, we couldn't go to Schomburg this year and we couldn't have our bingo, which is the fundraiser. And we usually have lots of prizes there. So this kind of replaces the bingo and we, we hope that people will participate. But we wanted you to have some prizes to take home as well. Sean Thiel to talk. Hello, Sean. Oh, all I was going to do was remind you about the magic code, and you already got it. <laughs> I was just worried people would be, I was worried it would be like school, where they're like, okay, time to go, and everybody would go. Oh, <laughs> so no, we don't <laughs> leave without our magic code. codes. We we have to give the magic code, and since um, the CECs were kind of m- my bailiwick for the this year again, uh, I'm really I will not let code. me forget that code. <laughs> <laughs> you are so right. <laughs> so, hey, you that code.
1: Yes. And this is for people who have registered for credits. So the ending code for this session is the letter E as in Edward, F as in Frank, three, five, nine. One more time. That's the letter E as in Edward, F as in Frank, three, five, nine.
0: Okay. Well, thanks, everybody. Again, we appreciate you being here. And I guess it's on to the movie and then to the fireworks. So we'll see everybody there.
2: Thank you. All right.
0: Thank you. All right.
2: All right I'll call you later about tomorrow.
0: Sounds good. Um, I, I, how about if uh, I call? You want to give me a call right now?
2: Okay, that's what I'll do.
0: Okay, we'll do it. Thank Bye. you so much, Katie. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Thank you.